here in Ontario with Ian at Nitus 3D and today we're going to talk about what makes your projects unique, all the things you've accomplished with your cobalt printer here. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, thanks for coming up, making the long drive. Yeah, so we just came from your project on uh, Wolf Island. Yeah. It's the first real concrete printed building uh, in North America, right? First two story, I first think. First two story. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure which the one story is. Uh, our first project in Lincoln okay. actually nice. was the one story. Cool. We finished that a little bit, a couple months ago. So. Okay. And that project, uh, is it a residential structure? Yeah, it was a really fantastic partnership between Nidus 3D, Habitat for Humanity, and the University of Windsor. And they're uh, affordable housing units for youth in recovery. So it was part of a recovery center that already existed in the city. And we're able to put in four sort of micro suites or small units that, that uh, uh, should be ready in, in about a month, actually. Cool. How far is that from here? Quite a ways, about a nine hour drive. It's right beside Detroit. Wow. Interesting. Cool. So, uh, why did you choose to use regular concrete instead of mortar? Uh, in a large part because of sort of building code and regulatory. Uh, conditions to, mm -hmm. to put up concrete structures. So we use a, a mix on site type of concrete that fits within the parameters of concrete that's used all over Canada all the time in mm -hmm. lots of different applications. And so what we feel we're doing is fundamentally placing that concrete in a different way, but using a mix that is already accepted and allows us to, to get building right away without going through the sort of testing that would be needed with a mortar-based mix. Yeah, and that testing is done through CSA? Uh, it's done through a number of organizations, but it would it, CSA would set the standards that it has to meet in order to be used in Canada. So were they uh, nitpicky in the beginning? Uh, we, we haven't really had that much in terms of interactions with them because we're using the mix on site concrete. Mm -hmm. I think our challenges on the concrete side have been uh, the quality and consistency of what we need to put in it because it's not a, a pre-mixed solution we had to go out and vet all of the different types of sand and aggregates yeah. and really hone in on one. There's lots of ones that say they meet the spec, but then you'll find a big hunk of gravel in it that's way bigger and, and would cause some problems in mm -hmm. the machine. So finding that consistency was the, the challenging part for sure. It's great to be able to procure that stuff locally. It is, and that's, I, I think, another big reason to go on in the direction of, of mix on site concrete is uh, we are going to be able to find sources of this and vet sources of this all across Canada. And as more people buy these printers or, or start using these printers, we're going to be able to refer them to the, these vetted sources and make sure they're using the high quality products that will allow them to get buildings out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And so when you went through those steps in terms of regulation, who, what caused the most strife uh, from a regulatory standpoint? We actually thought we were going to run into a lot more in terms of pushback, mm -hmm. um, particularly on the building code, so on, on, on meeting code standards. But what we've done is talk about these structures as a twin-walled masonry structure. And so there's a masonry section of the building code. Um, we, we make sure that we have all of our designs are stamped by engineers uh, long before they, they go before uh, folks, at, uh, building inspectors and, and mm -hmm. CBOs. So, the biggest challenge or the biggest question from that side of things was actually about vapor barriers and because we live in a climate with significantly fluctuating temperatures yeah. you know we drop well below zero and well above uh, vapor barrier is a really big deal up here and and where and how the vapor barrier is being applied is actually turned out to be uh, i wouldn't say a concern but a, a key challenge that that we had to figure out and overcome we were hoping to film some printing today but yeah. that didn't come to fruition what happened there uh, we've had a couple of delays on getting printing on our next job. Part of it is some site constrictions that we have. It's a really small footprint. It's the first time we've tried to print something in an inner city location. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other stuff had to do with some of the electronics in the printer itself and needing to do some updates because we moved it from one location to another. Yeah, what other constraints come with printing in a city? Uh, <laughs> I don't know where to start on that one. Uh, so many. Noise. You know, noise for sure is one, although it, it, the printer itself is pretty quiet. The pump is definitely the loudest part of this, yeah. so we have to work within noise time frames. Overhead wires have, were a ch not a challenge because we figured out how to slide everything underneath them, but if we have to go over them or anything, that's a huge sort of uh, obstacle that, that would have presented, I think, even more delays. 
Uh, we have to go through a significant encroachment permit process just to put the scaffolding, protective scaffolding over the sidewalk right beside the build because we're printing within three feet of where people are walking down the sidewalk. Yeah, it's cool to be the first printing company in Ontario. Uh, it, I'm sure it gets the locals really excited when they hear about it. Uh, I think so, and I think there's a there's a mix of some healthy skepticism, I think, and then some people who are, are very, very excited to see it. Uh, the housing crisis is so significant in Canada mm -hmm. that there's this kind of desperation, I think, for solutions. And I'm not going to say that 3D construction printing is the solution for the housing crisis anywhere in the world, in Ontario, and in Canada, and the States, anywhere. But I think it, it's a small part of something that can begin to move the needle on how we address the uh, affordability crisis yeah. we have on housing. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this last night, how it's, uh, it's about automation and bringing these tools to the job site. Now your team knows how to take digital models and bring them on site and print them uh, and have an as built and there's all kinds of synergies like you were talking about the, the roof structure. Yeah. Uh, can you go into a little detail on that? Yeah, for sure. So we're working with a company uh, based outside of Ottawa called Metalina and they have a, a steel truss system that takes uh, cold rolled steel, feeds it through a machine that cuts, bends, uh, drills and marks all mm -hmm. the components for roof truss systems and they can build to a very, very high tolerance. And it's another example of a partial automation of, of part of the building scope. And so we're able to take that uh, efficiency, pair it with the 3D printing and kind of, A, they work well together to begin with, but they also potentially shrink the total build time. And that's significant, both for getting houses to market, but also for lowering the cost. Most yeah. of the large scale projects are done with borrowed money. And so anytime you can start shaving days off that, that's less interest that you're paying, yeah. Cool, and another thing you were mentioning is the that system with the cold rolled steel isn't so applicable for traditional construction because they can be off by an inch or they might have uh, less precision. Yeah, that's that's exactly what the company ran into. So when, when we started working with them, they, they were pretty happy with the idea that a 3D printed building was always going to be square. Yeah. There's lots of other challenges with 3D printing that wood framing doesn't have, but your as-builts are not going to be out of square or, or you know sometimes multiple inches off of where they're supposed to land mm -hmm. because someone mismeasured something on, on one floor. So it does kind of allow the stacking of technologies in a way that I think is really unique. Yeah, that's a great way to put it in terms of you can find other things that work well within the 3D printed system and ultimately automate everything. Yeah. Um, is there anything you have your eye on, like another robot or tool you'd like to add to the uh, soiree? Or? Uh, I think we have to look at the entire building scope. I think mm -hmm. we have to look at all of the components. We've gotten to this place where we are relying on thousands of different uh, components made from hundreds of different types of materials to get a structure out of the ground. Yeah. And it, that level of complexity in a project is really difficult to execute. You know, you, you spend any time around construction, you understand why it's so expensive. We have created the, this really inefficient system. Um, and then we're, we're shocked when the price tags attached to it are, are astronomical. So yeah. I, I think that I don't know if there's one specifically. I think we have to do uh, everything from looking at uh, opening treatment stores and windows and, and how they interact, HVAC systems, uh, flooring. There, I saw a really unique company that has figured out how to kind of 3D print mosaic flooring uh, inside a building. I don't know if that's scalable, but that kind of out-of-the-box thinking of every single part of the build scope from breaking ground to move in, we have to look at better ways of doing it. Yeah, I think a lot of that stuff could come from even less tech-oriented laborers who have just worked with a bunch of different uh, technologies and stuff. Yeah. Most people on job sites on 3D printed house, the subcontractors especially, haven't worked with a 3D printed yeah. house before. So yeah. having the, even just your being on your third home, your fourth home, uh, yeah. are you working with the same subcontractors? Yeah, we are. And, and we're in a small town here in Ontario, uh, Kingston, Ontario, which is about two and a half hours outside of Toronto. And the relationships that we have in a small community are incredibly important mm -hmm. because we can find those subcontractors where uh, the other founder, Hugh, has been working. He's a builder, developer. He's been working with them for, for you know decades. And so he's, he's able to pull in those connections, explain what we're doing, and we can kind of build that relationship and, and grow the group of people who are able to, to work on these buildings and interact with them. Were there any major change orders on the first projects that... Uh 
No, there, there weren't uh, really on the first two. There's been uh, fairly significant change orders on the one we're about to embark on, which we're supposed to be printing right now. And one of the challenges we ran into on previous ones was uh, the delays for other substrates coming in. Mm -hmm. And so what we've had to do on this one is look at a way where we can not have to stop the printing for multiple weeks while we wait for, you know, for instance, a concrete slab to be poured between two floors. We, we need to be able to keep the printer in flow and keep uh, extruding material on not a 24-hour basis or anything like that, but, but at least continuously in terms of not having to take multiple week breaks. Is there room to implement punitive damages if a subcontractor is not on time, or is that too aggressive? Probably too aggressive in a town as small as this one. I think you'd kind of hurt your reputation pretty quickly, and, and there'd be fewer and fewer subs who are willing to work with you on mm -hmm. it. So I think it's more, everyone's really stretched. The labor shortage is enormous, and yeah. so I, I don't think it's about underperforming subs so much as it's about just a, a such a significant excess of work and not enough bodies to actually do it. I think yeah. everyone's in the same boat there. It's true. It's definitely the reason why construction automation is so important. Yeah. So the house that you're, all the homes you've designed, in conforming to those permitting standards of the uh, double wall uh, masonry system, yeah. are there concessions you had to make that you would have not done otherwise? Things that you could have done differently with different regulations? I think so. Regulations definitely need to catch up with 3D printing. So we're, from a structural point, we're integrating reinfor both reinforcement but also uh, sort of, I guess, the structural bones are being treated as a separate entity from the, th from the 3D printed concrete. Yeah. So we're not relying on the concrete right now to support any flooring systems or roof truss systems or anything. They are, are for the most part, acting as a wind block and a wind barrier. And Which is frustrating. You were saying it's like 46 MPA. It is. We, we are hitting, we hit 46 MPA at 28 days on material tests. A couple were lower. I think one, one may have exceeded it. But yeah, we're, we have an incredibly strong material that's almost on the cusp of, of being accepted for infrastructure projects. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it's a brand new industry. And, and we went into this knowing that we were going to have to over-engineer these buildings yeah. and knowing that we would have to put traditional reinforcement in and traditionally pour columns in order to get it past the building code. And that was just part of what we developed in terms of our designs and our business model from day one. It's better to get the buildings out of the ground with the added cost than not get them out of the ground at all because you're trying to do too much for sure. first step. So what was your career history like? Uh, before this, like, what did you study in school? Did you go to school? Uh, I did. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in international development, uh, and then I have a master's in public administration. Uh, prior to founding NIDAS, I, I was actually a politician at, at a, what would be a state level in mm -hmm. the U.S., um, it, but I think I, I've been in, I, I know several of the U.S. sort of Congress people and senators, and I think down there is mostly a part-time job here. It's a full-time job. so. Uh, it was actually through that and working on issues like the housing crisis that I realized that the solutions that were being put forward uh, were insufficient. They weren't going to move the needle on affordability. They, they might do a little bit here and there if you have some regulatory yeah. changes and stuff, but none of them kind of under addressed the underlying conditions that led to this, which is incredibly complex processes, thousands of materials or, or components and hundreds of materials. Uh, a massive lack of labor and ever-increasing labor costs and none of the changes that were happening were going to kind of bite off a piece of the big chunks that were making the mm -hmm. affordability crisis as rampant as, as it is. Even uh, in terms of like making it cheaper, sometimes you just have to go down a totally new path, yeah. uh, tumultuous new path yeah. to find that promised land. I you, guess you do. It, it, it's kind. Of, it's first principles. It's like look at every single part of putting up a building. How can we do this in a simpler or easier fashion? Are there things that where we can take two systems and integrate them into one? Um, we're very keen to get through the sort of proof of concept phase and build the business case around three D printing, but then use it as a springboard for all those other innovations yeah. that need to happen to really kind of make Nidus a player in, in the construction sector. People always try to get me to cover software on my channel and I always tell them to kick rocks because software usually on job sites is such a pain. Uh, it's the data management is all manually logged in so you're yeah. giving some guy 
who probably didn't go to school a tablet and telling him to in between hammer swings document the and it's so much added effort and work and the payout is all in the future once you have that documented for management so with systems like this where you can have it digitally collecting data on yeah. the print path and the building uh, even getting like a lidar scan or something of the as build at some point it releases those benefits without all the upfront uh, investment so there's a lot there for sure yeah absolutely and I think there's some fantastic companies working on some really cool things we've had some meetings with uh, the folks at Perry US and, and Perry Germany who are working on 3d printing with the same printer and and some of the developments they have coming down the pipe ex ex excuse the pun uh, in terms of data collection and how we're going to be able to actually follow the sort of data path created by printing and, and if there's ever yeah. a failure or something goes wrong we'll be able to hone in on the layer and have enough data to look at what went wrong at that layer time. Um, was there less moisture? Was there some spike in temperature? Did it start raining? Mm. All of that kind of stuff is really important. It's going to begin to allow us to understand building science in a way where we've never been able to collect data like that before. Yeah, a lot of that data will come from the mixer pump system. Mixer pump system and then and then sort of added on sensors somewhere in the flow of, of the concrete from the mixing system to the burnt head. In my opinion, the mixer pump system and the materials is probably the two things that need the most improvement. Most of the printers are very precise. Uh, they do what they're told. Uh, is that been your experience? That's a tactful understatement, yes. <laughs> it's, it's by far the biggest challenge that's out there. The, there's a lot of folks working on some really, really fantastic sort of, auto, we call them automated concrete placement devices, If we're because that's working in that masonry yeah. code. All we're saying is, we're doing masonry building, we're just putting it there in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the material side, it is definitely the biggest challenge, especially when you're mixing on site, uh, getting the mix down, understanding how it interacts with uh, sort of outside factors, atmosphere factors, the, the temperature, humidity, moisture, all of those things. Uh, calibrating the sand, did it just rain? Was your sand outdoors? <laughs> that changes everything immediately. Uh, same with your aggregates. So yes, it is. we think the area that, that definitely needs the most significant attention paid to it. Um, I think 3D printing was really cool. It's very popular. It's very sort of trendy right now to do it. And the thing everyone wants to see is the printer. Mm -hmm. and, and it's definitely a little less sexy to go to the back end of that and say, well, how do we, what, what, how do we make this mix? What's, yeah. what's our cooking recipe for this concrete? Is it consistent enough? And uh, I've, I've yet to see a, a batching system that I think was truly designed for 3D construction printing. Yeah, they're all uh, a work in progress. Um, yeah. So uh, one thing I always tell my clients is that it, you want to have relationships with the uh, government relationships. So it's really helpful that you had a political background so you know the guys pulling the strings. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to get permitting, especially new construction methods and stuff you were able to, I guess you knew the system from the inside. Uh, we, I, I did from a, from a political standpoint. I mean, there's, there's a limited amount of lobbying that we've done. I think most of it has been less at the pro provincial level or, or what would be the state level and more at the municipal level mm -hmm. on a city to city basis. And so we got very, I would say, lucky or blessed with the job in Leamington because or in Windsor, the very first one we did, because that was an existing project where they had wanted to do it as a pilot project. They worked with the local building officials to figure out how they were going to permit this. And so they've done a lot of our work for us, and then we just had to show that the materials we were using met those standards and or exceeded those standards. So that, that was really important for the first one. And then since that, we've been able to kind of springboard off of that and say, this is how they approach permitting. Um, yeah. They're over-engineered. <laughs> here's the engineers' person. stamps. Here's the architect's stamps. Here's the you know, so you start layering enough credentials on top of something, and, and you do it in a, in a very sort of I think diligent and responsible way. You you try to preempt the questions that they're going to have. You you don't dig in your heels when they push back against one aspect of it. Be willing to adapt and kind of change how you're building. And and I think there's enough of an appetite out there from building officials to to see technologies introduced that could potentially help solve some of the problems that, that we're facing, that there's a willingness to work with you. Was the Windsor Group one of the 
teams that had a plan for traditional construction and approached you with that to retrofit to be printed? No, they wanted to 3D print from the beginning, and this is the partnership with the University of Windsor mm -hmm. and their concrete lab that they have down there, their concrete testing facility. So they were previously using an arm-based printer, a much smaller arm-based printer from another company, and they basically ran into the problem that that printer had more downtime than uptime. They couldn't really get anything out of the ground because it was, it was too difficult. It couldn't handle the materials. The pump wasn't strong enough, a mm -hmm. whole bunch of different issues from that perspective. So they approached us. Uh, it was intended to be a 3D building and they had some government funding attached to it and they were basically in a position of either either figuring out how to print in 3D or, or potentially losing that funding. So we wow. were able to come in and it was, uh, you know, significantly, I think, mutually beneficial arrangement. We, yeah. Universities have a lot of power in the uh, zoning and permitting and just like relationships with the government and stuff for sure. I think from the perspective of providing the data to back up what you're trying to do, I don't think they really exert a lot of influence over the regulations up here, but when uh, an inspector wants some, some data on a point or something like that, they're able to you know, do the testing um, in a way and, and kind of be at the forefront of an industry and uh, provide some of that. Yeah, another thing I like to say is you can definitely print a house, but if you have a specific location in mind, it's not guaranteed you'll be able to print there. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Although we we have had a lot of success with what we call the, the print-in-place lift-in components, mm -hmm. and that kind of opens a lot of doors because they're, so you're, you're kind of, I would say, <laughs> working in a, a ultra-custom precast solution. And so you can you can yeah. you don't need a minimum yield, which is what kind of is the the hindrance to precast solutions. Mm -hmm. It costs so much to build the form Adjusted to pour it in, yeah. And so we don't have that limitation, and and it introduces a bunch of logistical challenges. Suddenly you have transportation and all these. You throw out a lot of the efficiencies that are associated with three D construction printing by going that direction, but it does open a few doors in where you can end up placing three D printed material. Yeah. Did you make any big changes from the project we visited this morning to the project that's going to happen next? Um, I think the most significant one was kind of the, the change orders for how we were supporting the flooring systems mm -hmm. in between. So rather than stopping and pouring the floor each time, we introduced a steel skeleton on the inside of the structure, add some uh, lateral stability to the building as well from, from a wind shear perspective, but then it will also support the entirety of the floor and roof systems on the steel. So again, we end up with this uh, concrete form around the outside, which holds the insulation and the mechanical and provides that function, but really is just there as kind of a, a veneer and a wind block. Are you pouring some like weaker columns just to support the wall structure? Not on that one. Um, we have a grouted uh, foundation that, that we're, pr we're printing the formwork mm -hmm. for the foundation and grouting that uh, in terms of support and then two stories going up from that. So no but, cold bridging uh, between the inner and outer wall for the most part? Very, very little. So we use uh, block lock, a block lock system to provide the stability between the two veneers. So there is some, obviously you need some connections yeah. between those two veneers. Not concrete? No, not concrete. We're, we're using a steel-based system because we're doing a, a pour in insulation and uh, the thermal mass of concrete is fantastic, but if you don't have that gap uh, between the concrete supports that you often see the webbing, uh, it gets pretty cold here and that's a lot of heat transfer without yeah. any insulation break between it. Is that a monolithic structure? Uh, yeah, it will be a monolithic structure. So no precast units or prefab? All in place? Uh, all in place for that one. I think on the front end there's a set of steps and stuff which we'll actually print on the inside again as lifting components and we'll move that out. But those are, kind of, I would, they're not, they could be anything. You mm -hmm. could have done steel steps if you wanted to and yeah. had a truly monolithic structure. And you're going to three floors? Basement plus two. Oh, cool. So the basement is precast concrete or? No, the bit, well, so 3D printed formwork and then grouted to nice. be the foundation. So I, I think we're the first ones trying to do that, uh, which is kind of cool. We're pretty excited to, to see how that works. And we, while well, we know what's going to work, we're <laughs> claiming that it's a 3D printed basement is probably a bit of a stretch, but it's 3D printed formwork that we're grouting to, to have a more traditional foundation for the building. Yeah, stretch it. Why not? Better for the title. You can explain it later in the video. Yeah, exactly. That's what this is about. So. The design, the uh, 
have you talked to any of the neighbors about you're about to have a printed house next to you? <laughs> uh, I, I think some of that took place initially. Anytime you put up a new multi-unit structure, there's sure. a public zoning order that has to go in and a public meeting and all of that. Did so, you have that one guy who was like, not on my street? Uh, we haven't had that yet. Um, I'm sure we're going to run into that. I think we, we live in a town that has a lot of historic buildings. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's often some pushback to uh, any sort of densification that happens. And this is a densification project. We removed a, a, a single family home and we're putting eight units on the same spot, but it's the way we need to go. We, we don't have enough housing. We need infill projects. We need more concentrated populations. We don't need more suburbia. How long until you print one for yourself? Uh, <laughs> when Nidus is, is up and running and yeah. no longer a startup. <laughs> got a lot to do before that. We got a lot to do before that, absolutely. But you have some projects going on uh, right next door to your headquarters? Uh, yeah, we're, we're hopefully, yes. Uh, we haven't uh, finalized the details on it, but there would be five townhomes and then a fully detached home, and there's a lot of interest to have them 3D printed. They were existing drawings, so the question marks are, can we take a, a traditional, what would have been a cinder block build, what mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, adaptations do we have to do and they're breaking ground next spring so most of that I, I suspect it will go forward most of it we have to kind of figure out as we exit this build season and uh, find just the tiniest bit of breathing room to, to think about what comes next are you waiting for the steel frame structure to determine which is better to move forward with uh, not on these ones there, there would be different parameters on this one they're not going to need to be as tall the ones we're printing with the steel skeleton on the inside are kind of very, they're very, they're boxes, but because they're, they're very tall, sort of mm -hmm. separated boxes, it, it, that made a lot of sense. I would suspect on these ones that there, there's some fairly high-end narrow condos, and I, I don't know how we would have steel interact. We may, um, we kind of have to tackle each project as it comes, work with the architects, work with the engineers, and figure out exactly how we can make this to, you know, not just meet, but exceed the code and, and get out of the ground. Yeah. If young people are watching this and they're interested in working for you, what kind of skills should they acquire? Uh, that's a really good question. I, some computer literacy, certainly, because you are right, there is a digitization of the construction sector happening right now with this technology, so I think that's important. Our key operator was someone who started on a computer science degree, uh, our, our printer one key operator, and office work wasn't for him and then he ended up in construction and so now he's managed to kind of meld those two worlds in, in a really perfect way so I, I think that's important uh, I think a willingness to pivot and adapt and, and kind of think on your feet this is a brand new industry the challenges are we were supposed to see printing today we're not seeing printing today you never quite know what is going to get thrown at you and so I think the ability to to think on your feet and, and pivot, but also remain optimistic when things aren't quite exactly what they are supposed to be at the time they're supposed to be there. We will get there. Yeah, um, I've gotten used to expecting things to be like, take twice as long and, yes. uh, but that's yeah. not just 3D printed construction. It's uh, certainly a challenge because it's so new for people, Yeah. but traditional construction has that same problem. Things go over budget, over time. All the time. Uh, but as you automate more steps, ideally, that problem alleviates. I hope so. When I started NIDIS or, or started thinking about going in this direction, I was interested in starting a business and I wanted to find a sector that I thought had potential for significant disruption. And construction is one of the few sectors where the technology revolution has not fully sort of transformed it. it Efficiency seeing, per person is going down. I mean, that's yes. unheard of in yeah. any industry this era. Yeah, and, and everyone's retiring. The baby boomer generation is retiring, and I don't know what it is in the U.S., but in Canada, for, we only have one person coming into the skilled trades for every two people retiring in the baby boomer wow. generation. So the shortfall's only going to get worse right now. So uh, solutions like 3D construction printing have to be part of, of the approach going forward. I mean, yeah, how long could that trend continue until we're like Rome who can't build the aqueducts anymore and we have this great construction where we don't know how they did it, it's just uh, we're not as good as our ancestors, I guess. Yeah, well that's exactly it. And they also set the that. standard for what concrete, sh how concrete should perform over the millennia, right? Yeah. yeah. Roman concrete is still some of the strongest in the world. Yeah, there is the bias of uh, only the concrete standing is left, so we don't see all the badly. All, all the badly, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. 
what do you need right now the most to grow your company? Obviously, you want to get to scale so that you have enough uh, capacity to print your own homes and do fun little stuff like that. Uh, how do you get there and what do you need most? I think uh, sort of tailing off the unexpected obstacles mm-hmm. that we're running into. So we, we know the printer works. We know we can build buildings that meet code standards. So I think that was a big part of it. Now I think it's about finding out what parts of the printing process are likely to go wrong and mitigating those before they actually happen. Because the biggest challenge we face right now is that time delay that you were talking about. We have this incredibly efficient tool to build buildings, mm-hmm. and but when it's not in use, we're not generating revenue. And so to, to take this company and scale it, we need to figure out how we kind of continuously keep the printer printing and lifting components are part of it. Uh, removing the floor systems and having new approaches where we don't have to pause as part of it. Uh, some systems that would allow the printer to kind of pause on one project and maybe slide over a little bit and, and start on the next project. Mm-hmm. Something like that where, where you could make sure it was continuously printing. All of those things are going to kind of underpin the business case for 3D construction printing. Um, but we are the first ones doing it and so we're the ones who are kind of figuring a lot of those obstacles out and what the solutions are to them. So I, I would like, I'd like a day at some point in the near future where there isn't a new thing that we have to kind of figure out a new solution to. Well, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, I think so. That's uh, exactly it, yeah. Silver lining a little bit. Yeah. Uh, cool, so you're self-funded for the most part and you were, you got your printer self-funded, you and the other two founders. Yeah. Um, what kind of freedoms has that allowed you? Well, we have full control over the company and, and we have done a small race. So it's not like we haven't gone out and gotten uh, some investors to yeah. help us move this forward, but it really is driven by the three founders and we've been able to maintain control of the company that way. So I, I think what's most important about it is uh, not being limited to just what 3D printing is and being able to think about the larger build scope and where we want to take the company in the future mm-hmm. and those sort of layering of technologies that we can bring in. I think that's really important. Um, I think it's also allowed us to build relationships that are fundamentally helpful for us, and they might be post-secondary relationships or relationships with uh, aggregate suppliers and different companies already in this yeah. space. I think that's been really important. We we can just hop in the car and go meet them, and it's fine for us to represent the company because yeah. we are the company. Definitely, you can make decisions uh, without having to check up on yeah. everybody else. So yeah. I guess Hugh brought a lot of those relationships to the table with his previous construction experience in the region. Yeah, Hugh for sure did that. Um, all of the people that he's worked with on developments for years. Uh, I think one of the nicest things about the three people driving Nidus right now is the skill sets are different. And so Hugh has a background in building and lean manufacturing. He brought those relationships, my background uh, in politics and those sort of community more social relationships that we can bring in the, the being able you know to, to reach out to different community organizations and politicians and work with them and then Ted who's the last founder um, has uh, he's, a, he's a bit older than we are and he started multiple companies and helped grow them so he came in to help us with sort of growth and startup uh, stuff like that and so again that's it's a whole separate set of, of skills and when you pull the three of those together we, we've been able to kind of, I think, build something that's pretty cool and certainly very exciting to get to be a part of it. I, I oh, get sure. to spend my days with really smart people, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, can you talk a little bit about hiring and how it's different from, uh, maybe Hugh has experienced trouble finding new uh, yeah. energy for construction, but uh, when you're working with this tech, is it different? It's totally different, but I don't know we can take credit for that. I mean, we're riding the wave of everyone liking yeah. 3D printing right You now. chose the industry, so yeah. I think you can take credit for that. Okay. Well, maybe a little bit, but certainly there's a lot of interest in working here. Um, we've brought good people with us, so some folks I had worked with before who I had really good experiences with, I said, mm-hmm. hey, I've got this new thing. If you'd like to come over and see if there's a place for you here, I think that it would be really cool. So. I mean, that's been beneficial, but certainly there's there's enough interest out there. We're getting a lot of resumes from people. Did Hugh do this uh, beam right here over the windows? Uh, I'm not sure if Hugh did that part of this, but that is actually how we ended up in the space we're in. It's built by a company, uh, architectural firm called Raw Design. 
and it was through work uh, with you that we were able to meet them and they've been our architectural partners on uh, They've helped on all of the projects we've gone out at the ground from the get-go. I didn't really put uh, like the raw design, I'm sure it's just a name, but like that's good raw design right there. Exposed woods, exposed beams, it's nice to uh, leave things like that instead <laughs> of covering it up. This, this building is a reflection of, uh, I don't know if lumber prices skyrocketed in the U.S. like they did in Canada. Yeah, but, they uh, they're back down now. Yeah, so this is a reflection of pre-skyrocketing lumber prices because those are all actually... Uh, uh, stacked two by eights, I believe, wow. side by side by That's side. That's crazy. I know it's a lot of wood, right? Like it's like it's to think about that now. It's it's like no one no one could do this anymore. You guys lumber prices took are. it apart, bought another printer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the uh, we talked about the next steps for Nidus. This is your first startup. Uh, this is my first startup. Yeah. Yeah. And. You haven't had to do a big fundraise yet. Uh, most of your, like what's your day-to-day -day challenges looking like? Are you physically on site or are you business side more? Hugh does the construction. Uh, we do share it depending on availability. Uh, it's ever evolving. Hugh has uh, a young daughter who was mm -hmm. just born. So that kind of changed stuff. And I, I've been on site a little bit more since that happened, uh, but that's just re you know realities of life anywhere. What's your biggest um, concern right now other than making a good podcast? Uh, getting the projects done in this season that we need to get done. I think we, mm. we've had enough delays that we will run up to uh, decreasing temperatures in Ontario. There, There's a minimum we can print in, so I think we're at this point looking at a couple tenting solutions to extend the build season a little bit nice. and then moving inside for the winter in a warehouse and printing components. Yeah, I guess Mother Nature puts a hard stop on printing past like October or what's the... Yeah, probably somewhere in October. Fingers crossed it's supposed to be a warm fall. We, we hope we hang on to that. Um, there's, there's ways to kind of do it and, and we're, we, have, we are learning so much on a project-to-project -project basis that we do anticipate being able to uh, continuously sort of speed up the printing and we've done that so far. Um, and I, I think it will happen. That kind of what I said about a day without a new issue, um, they are becoming more manageable just bit by bit by bit. Yeah, you mentioned you'll put the printer potentially in some kind of facility for the winter, do some offset printing. That'll probably lead to that day of no surprises. When I see that. <laughs> I really hope so. That's what I'm <laughs> aiming for, Jared. That like one in ten the of dream. them, maybe. There'd still yeah. be a lot of surprises. Yeah, there will. But there's so much mitigated inside. Yeah. Yeah, so I, the goal for the winter is kind of interesting, actually. It's our first commercial job. Uh, it's going to be a series of Nine warehouses total, I think four executed in this year and four, four or five next year. But the goal is actually to print the first two warehouses as a double bay, uh, as lifting components, mm -hmm. uh, or as, as the full part, and, so then print shrink, yeah, and then shrink the printer down a little bit because it's a modular design, mm -hmm. park it inside that, and print the rest of the warehouses over the winter while we're, we're housed in the first two. So we don't know if that's going to work. I'm going to tell you right now that is not a claim to successfully execute this, but we're we're going to try because if that's successful, it it opens up a whole new business case for 3D construction printing. Yeah, I think you're saying all the right things in terms of uh, you're not going to be dramatically wrong because you're talking in the right terms of like the future instead of saying like we're definitely this is happening. Yeah. Unfortunately, the company's saying that we're definitely doing this. This is happening. Or the company's raising like millions and millions of dollars for some reason. I, I know and it's there are definite I have had moments of frustration when I read those headlines about how much capital they have access to and we have this little tiny pocket and, and we're driving you know we're, we're supporting it with revenue which is good we are getting projects out of the ground they are paying projects and so that's been uh, you know a big part of what why we're able to move this company forward hopefully as the interest rate shift there's a change from uh, people wanting to take big risks on things that are uncertain to people wanting like authenticity and truthfulness uh, rather than, yeah, like crazy claims? I, I think, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, we, we in the small raise we did, we did pitch a group of potential investors and, and their feedback to us was that we were actually too conservative, that if we promised the moon, they would have been more likely to invest. Yeah. And I don't know, it's not how we built this company. We were very careful. We didn't say anything publicly until we had actually accomplished some of what we said we were going to do. 
we, we were very, very cautious. There's so much out there on 3D printing right now that I think is not really rooted in reality, to yeah. be completely honest. And we didn't want NIDAS to go down that route. And so we've, we've been successful in the media. We've had a lot of coverage, but we were very careful that the coverage was of stuff that we had actually successfully accomplished. Yeah, it's something that I definitely appreciate, but I'm not an investor, so it's hard to say what the right thing to do is. Uh, I think there's definitely merit to like the investors know how to invest, so maybe their advice is good advice. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I think given how new this is, how big the challenges are, I think that maybe uh, promising a, a vision of the future that's a little further away in a year might be feel more realistic than it does right now. I, I think that we are on such a steep learning curve that I don't think in good conscience I, I could sell something that I knew was you know, still had at that level of risk attached to it. And we are de-risking it, we know it works. And I think you and I have kind of been talking about how at this point we feel like our, our you know, maybe not worst case scenario, but at the least we expect to be a tidy little small business. We know we can print buildings, we can know we can do it at a cost point where we are competitive with the market. And uh, so, <laughs> You know, if, if we're not successful in the big dream we have in the future, I think we will be, to be honest with you. I think we're going to get there, but uh, we at least have the underpinnings of a successful small business at this point. So I think that's a big step from where we were a year and a half ago. Yeah, and some of the things that come with being in a small town, working with the same subcontractors, uh, you definitely are like relationships guys. So you know that if you make these big promises, the long tail of that yeah. harms your relationships. Yeah. And, and we're going to grow. I mean, we, we don't anticipate only operating in this small market. I think this small market is really good for getting a startup going in a lot of ways. It's not, I would say, the traditional place to put a startup. Startups tend to group together in certain geographic locations in Canada. It's Kitchener, Waterloo, and sort of Guelph in U.S., San Francisco, and now Texas. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that those relationships are what really has driven the viability of this business and then will provide that foundation where we can take NIDAS and grow it into the greater Toronto area, which is the largest population base in Canada, and, and move it out west to Vancouver where they have you know, even more housing pressure than we have here in Ontario. Yeah, construction is kind of unique because in those more densely populated wealthy areas, they tend to be more restrictive. So if you have the past precedent from the starting somewhere like here, yeah. uh, it's much easier to sell it to them, hopefully. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we're, we're even excited about the prospect of putting up some buildings in even more rural locations than our small town. Because yeah. again, if you know, farm structures, for instance, really simple things that are quick to print um, and where we're kind of gaining the most net benefit 3D printing kind of offers. For sure, especially because it's mostly uh, single unit or multi-unit projects, but certainly not like skyscrapers or city. No, not yet. I mean, it's, I, I, there's a couple of things I think are coming for the 3D printing specifically. One, I don't think concrete is going to be the final, or sorry, not final, but only extruded product. Mm -hmm. I think we're, we'll start seeing uh, there's uh, at least one U.S. university working on some wood fiber and additive extrusions that, that you could potentially feed through the same sort of system. You probably need different pipes and stuff, but the fundamentals will remain the same. So I think that's going to happen. And then I think we'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see the technology scale. So Cobot already has their XL printer that they have down in, in Rochester, that GE partnership. So already you're at least one company has said, okay, we're doing this on a house size, now let's do it on an apartment building size. And apartments were not the impetus for, for the XL printer, it was the windmill bases, but it's not hard to see other companies looking at that or, or coming up with their own ideas and, and scaling it to the place where it is apartment buildings, maybe mid-rise, maybe not skyscrapers yet, but, but certainly the mid-rise ones. Yeah, it's an interesting idea using that base and then maybe putting housing inside of it or something. Uh, Circles are very efficient in terms of surface area to uh, square feet interior. Yeah, they are. They are, and I think it's very cool that we have this building median now where we can incorporate rounded corners and circles as easily as we can, actually easier than we can incorporate squared off corners. And there's all sorts of studies, and our, our architects will talk to you about this endlessly, about all the benefits of having round spaces. There's heat loss benefits when cold mm. climates. Corners are super inefficient. They leak a lot of heat. You round that out significant improvement and then there's sort of the sociological spatial considerations that I'm not an expert in at all but I know people do talk about the, the round shapes and, and this 
that sort of structure being being uh, or having an impact on that area. Yeah, historically, people didn't really live in boxes. They lived in like I guess in the beginning, like caves, and then like igloos and yeah. simple structures. Very, a lot around. If you look back at kind of, yeah. it, it was a long it, it was a long time before we decided to build only in square shapes. Yeah. Are there uh, so the Cobot system, they have a great software that kind of demos the print before you do it. Yeah. Uh, what are the ways that's helped you the most before understanding like what the print will look like? Uh, I think the, that sort of software has been most beneficial with customers mm -hmm. because we can take what was a 2D file or, or if we're lucky they provided us with a 3D CAD file. Uh, and we can feed it through that and we can show them exactly what it's going to look like as their building comes out and they suddenly understand what twin, even twin veneer is, mm -hmm. which you can, you know, sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and forget that we've been using this lingo for, for two years nonstop right now and that we have to work with uh, customers and, and where they're at on yeah. this. So it, it's helped a lot on the customer facing side of it. A lot of the help I imagine would be in the equipment management, making sure things aren't like, crossing over or going to bang into each other. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I haven't had any experiences with other printers, so I don't know if that's something other printers actually do run into. I actually hadn't considered that because that was, you know, remarkably not one of the things we've run into. Yeah, usually equipment management uh, on the earlier Cobot jobs was uh, something that would cause delays. Okay, yeah. It's good they uh, yeah. figured that out. Yeah, they um, certainly have. Yeah, you guys are like the guinea pigs. They they got the product, but they yeah. it's not like they printed everything. It's the possibilities are so endless, and that's a double-edged sword because you could do so much new stuff, but everything's new. That's been actually a challenge for, for the three of us, for Ted, Hugh, and I, is to think about what projects are most beneficial for the future of NIDIS and uh, matching, you know, what what's the potential revenue, uh, pairing that with what could it lead to. So even if it's not necessarily high revenue out of mm -hmm. the gate, is it something that's going to open doors for us? Uh, there are There is too much to do. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we're successful, this hopefully will be a life's work to kind of drive this forward. Um, if, you know, and, and that's certainly where we are aspiring to get to. Um, but it's, there is so much to do, there is no possible way. So picking and choosing the, the small parts of this that we want to be able to tackle immediately, you know, near term, medium term, and, and then looking at what some of the long term potential is. And the long term potential is really exciting, but yeah. it's also you can't just get stuck in that. You've got to figure out what's happening tomorrow and next week before you spend all your time on, on what that future promise is going to be. There are a lot of steps to get there. A lot of steps to get there. For the roofing structures, have you used similar roofing on the first three units that you've done? Uh, no, we, uh, the, the Leamington project was finished not by us. So the very first project was, was a build design that we mm -hmm. stepped into. So everything was already figured out. All the contractors were already there on that. Um, on, on this other job, th these next two are both that new roofing system that we've decided to incorporate. With steel? Yeah, steel trusses. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other tech with the building, like uh, how's the Wi-Fi, have you thought about stuff like that? Uh, not too much, mostly because there's not going to be a lot of printed interior walls. So mm -hmm. once we get you know Wi-Fi stations into it, it's a multi-unit, so there's four units over three floors. Um, or two up-down units on, on either side of mm -hmm. a, fire, a concrete fire separation wall. So uh, we haven't too much. The interesting, we're very excited about this next project because it incorporates a, a basement that is partially 3D printed um, and because it's three full stories. So we're, we're pushing the printer to its max height for the very first time and just barely squeaking out enough printable height to, to get three stories, mm -hmm. which is was a challenge. That certainly was a design consideration that took some work to figure out how to do that. Um, but the rest of it is actually very traditional and there's some benefits to that as well. So uh, the project we just finished, the homeowner really likes the look of the printed concrete. He thinks it looks a bit like yeah. limestone, which there's a lot of around uh, Kingston where we're located. Um, if you cut through it, like kind of striations and layers. Mm -hmm. uh, so he wants it exposed. This next project is actually going to be bricked. 
and so we're going to brick the outside of, of the con concrete which may be a little redundant but it also makes it fit into a neighborhood and so by the time we're done yes they're 3d printed structures will anyone really know that no they yeah. won't and and that kind of in some ways helps our business case from from an acceptance level from developers that this is a viable technology and they don't need to sell their customers on some wacky new thing that they don't really understand. Especially since you've done the raw one already, so it's yeah. good to show both. Yeah. What about home insurance? Uh, they're masonry structures, so they're going to be treated as the same as any other sort of masonry structure. Yeah, home insurance has been a challenge in the States uh, with a couple of the printed homes there. I actually haven't really seen uh, hard evidence that anybody's really moved into the homes and after they say the move in they do the handover I don't stop by again just because it's like a private residence instead of a construction project where I feel way more comfortable uh, yeah yeah for sure I think our approach of decoupling the sort of engineering and, and the structural components from the printed material will allow progression on that I think. the other companies do the same approach really nobody's using any structural printed concrete yet yeah it's a masonry structure. It's going to be bricked. It's going to have interior concrete plastered walls. I, I, I don't really anticipate, you know, in, in terms of insurance, if you're looking at fire safety, it's going to massively exceed any wood frame structure that's out there. Uh, water permeability is, you know, very difficult. You may end up with some moisture on the inside of one of these buildings. It's not going to have the same effect as a, as a potential rot in wood. So uh, I, we will see. Um, but we haven't, none of the people that we've been building for so far have even raised that as an issue yet. And I, I don't imagine in particular that the Leaming Game project would have gone off the ground without the insurance kind of already in place. Yeah, usually that comes after the certificate of occupancy, so when everything's completed. Uh, but I like the idea of having the interior walls not printed because you get variety and it's less uh, overwhelming for the residents. It yeah. kind of. Will also, there be any exposed concrete on the interior of those projects? Uh, probably a little bit on the exterior walls. Uh, we probably will do some additional smoothing. So we do use the, the cobalt screed to mm -hmm. get a, a surface area that's not quite as uh, sort of sausage or spaghetti look, depending on which term you prefer to use. Is screed a technical term or is that a... A screed is something to smooth concrete okay. with. So maybe it's technical. I think it's kind of never been applied in this way before, but it, it, is, it, it flaps. is... Yes, flaps. Um, but yes, the flaps that would go on the side. So Screech we'll, we'll do we'll do some smoothing. We've had a lot of success. We did an art project, a public art installation project, a partnership again with Raw Design, and uh, we were able to shockcrete and then do a sponge finish on the shockcrete on that, which uh, I think provided a, a pretty nice finish. If you want kind of an exposed concrete look, I'd be totally happy with that. Um, I, I think that we probably need to do a little bit to the concrete to get it sort of in a state where I'd want to hand it over yeah. to a resident. More presentable. Yeah. That's a great project example of something that would be really challenging to do without a concrete printer because you have 62 different elements. Yeah, we did. So the project is meant to look almost like a, the skeleton of an enormous serpent that mm -hmm. might be sitting in sand or something beside the water's edge. So it kind of comes out and goes down in the ground and, and each concrete piece is meant to represent a rib uh, mm -hmm. of of this massive creature and so yeah there's 65 elements every single one of them is a different shape uh, they looked at doing it in in wood in uh, uh, marine ply and just gluing layers of marine ply together but then there's a level of constant upkeep uh, the cost of marine ply again like all other lumber has skyrocketed so we were fairly uniquely positioned on this project to be able to kind of step in and provide a solution that was not prohibitively expensive and that really kind of fit the vision of that, that raw put forward when they designed the project. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, through our website, nagas3d.com, or, or our email addresses are up there. Yeah, there's, we're pretty available. We're on most social media platforms. Uh, we'd love to have people follow us and, and watch what we're doing, and uh, we're pretty proud of it, so we do want to show it off to the world. And what would you hope that they contact you with? Uh, projects potentially as we grow in scale I think that would be fantastic anything that uh, is challenging and innovative and continues to push the boundaries of what we're able to do um, people potentially looking for work we, we are going to scale this company fairly significantly and mm -hmm. we definitely need the 
the, the minds and the level of dedication that we've been able to cultivate so far in, in a whole, you know, lar massively larger scale as we are able to grow. Yeah, there's definitely a supply-demand mismatch when it comes to this industry. There's a lot more people that are interested in 3D printing construction than people who can 3D print houses. So yeah. how can a customer set themselves up for success when they're contacting you? What should they be aware of or have prepared? I think understanding that the building is not going to be the exact uh, replica of, of, say, a wood frame or, or an ICF build, that there are considerations when you move to an automated printing process that they need to take into account. So if they have existing drawings, being willing to kind of make some small adaptations mm -hmm. to those, uh, not being too hard set on, on what it needs to be. Uh, preferably, we'd like to embark on the design process from the get-go yeah. because we've learned so much on, on the few projects we've done. We have a lot of information to kind of hand over and work with people on, on how to grow this. For sure. The truck mixing system that you were going to try today, I think that's an interesting thing to talk about because most people yeah. in concrete are used to the wet concrete arriving, yeah. ready to go on site, and the mixer pump is such a headache, it just seems like an obvious way forward. Uh, how did you come to the conclusion that you wanted to do that, and what kind of benefits uh, do you foresee? We, we had some really severe space limitations on, on the build site that we're currently on, and when we were trying to map out the locations for where components could be, mm -hmm. um, figuring out where the batching system could live, there, there's kind of one large path down to, because we had to over-excavate the site in order to do the basement, and so there's a kind of path down to it, and we would have had a permanent structure blocking our only access point to the actual build site. Yeah. And so by putting it on something mobile and, and using one of these volumetric mixers, we're able to kind of accomplish uh, a high-tolerance mix design, because uh, we do work in a, a very specific mix design, um, and it's able to deploy it consistently and then when we need access to, to the build site it's able to pull away and, and move so that was the main consideration there um, finding this testing it finding out that it worked uh, was actually a pretty significant step forward for us because we were not sure how we were going to do it in such a constrained space previously. yeah especially once you get up to like the second story now you're doing with all the pressure from the hose going yeah. up so yeah. you still need a pump you still need a pump, but the pumps are mobile. They're much, much smaller than the actual batching system and the silo that has to sit beside it. Because not only do you have the silo and the batching system, in order to run the, or use the batching system, you kind of have to build a sort of scaffold structure around that. So it's not even as easy as picking it up and moving it. There, there's probably a day of scaffolding to build that structure around the batch plant. Yeah, and then at the end, what's the cleanup process like in terms of uh the first the day-to-day -day cleaning process and then the taking the printer off the site? The day-to-day -day is significant. We're one of the challenges to sort of scaling this business is making sure that we have enough printable time in each day. So we need to limit the time we're spending on, on mobilization each morning, uh, getting everything up and running, and then we need to streamline and create efficiencies for cleanup at the end of the day. Uh, we're kind of approaching the ratio right now by onboarding a second shift so we can do much longer days of printing. Uh, hopefully mobilization, demobilization takes the same amount of time yeah. and, and there's a longer print window in the middle. So uh, that's really important, but uh, sorry, would you repeat the question again? I lost the, the first part of it. The first part was the day-to-day -day cleanup, oh, yeah. so like power washing, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we, we've got down a fairly, I guess, standardized routine at this point of what the steps are. Uh, the sort of exciting, not exciting days are when something goes wrong and we're kind of racing to make sure the lines are cleared in time or if something has, you know, we, uh, you never know what it is. There was one day where suddenly we had this blockage and it turned out to be caused by this uh, a four inch bolt wow. that was in the concrete mix somehow. It had fallen out during the manufacturing process somehow. It hadn't been filtered out by the screed. Somehow it must have vertically fell through. Uh, we, we're not really sure how it made it as far as it did, but it was a bit of a, it wasn't from our equipment, so it could have only come from uh, either dropping into the sand or gravel or something like that. Yeah, and on a residential project like we were at earlier, when you're cleaning that concrete, what happens to all the like concrete water? Uh, so we do collect it. Uh, we have clean fill bins on site, so basically we're, we're filling up clean fill bins and, and moving stuff off. Yeah. That's important, especially for a residential project. You can't just like leave uh, sprayed concrete all over the plants and stuff outside. No, no, you really can't. You have to. The small footprint of the printer means that that, that cleanup is limited to a very small space. 
Uh, there's definitely going to be less of that with the, the volumetric trucks that we're using because the clean out of those happens back at their, their initial location. Yeah. It's not being sprayed out on site. So there's already less cleaning. Um, the printer itself, I mean, there's a pump system. We usually dump it into the bucket of a skid steer and we're able to take anything that's extruded, you know, super watery concrete, whatever it is, the cleaning water, and then we tip it into the clean fill bins and allow it to do its thing. Nice, so then the project's complete. You start taking the printer down. What's that process like? Uh, it, it's pretty okay. I think, uh, I mean, here on this new project, our big challenge is going to be overhead wires. Uh, and potentially, you know, if we have to bring a larger crane in right now, we're able to do it with a, a large telehandler that we uh, bought mm -hmm. specifically for putting up and taking down the equipment. The biggest challenge here is if there is enough height to kind of lift the Z axes and move them uh, over and out without going up and over the wires. So yeah, that's a challenge we haven't quite figured out yet how we're going to approach it, but it, it's Teardown is becoming a lot more streamlined. I mean, this is probably the fourth or fifth time this crew has done it, and it's, it's significantly increasing in speed just due to experience. Not really changing any of the processes, but everyone knowing where to go when and the type of efficiencies you have when you have a crew of people that's worked together for now, you know, eight, nine months. Yeah, there's no shortage of things to be improved, and that's what's so motivating because it's promising for the future as you guys continue to figure out more synergies and efficiencies. Yeah, you talked about that last night, and, and in the same way as there's so many design opportunities about where to go, it's, it's trying to identify what efficiencies are the most important ones to kind of bite off and try and achieve first. So, and you know, our considerations, do they drive revenue, or what, are they just nice things to have, or are they necessary things to have, all that kind of uh, pros and cons on each one, and there's only so much energy, there's only so many resources with uh, a smaller company like Nidus. And so I, I think it's uh, certainly a challenge to pick and choose exactly where we're trying to find those efficiencies in these early days. Yeah, cool. Well, I think this has been pretty thorough, but is there anything else on your mind that uh, we haven't gotten to cover yet? I don't think so. I appreciate your questions tremendously, actually, because we do a lot of interviews and, and having folks who have been around, I, I don't think there's probably anyone in the world who's seen as many 3D printing sites as you at this point. So At least they haven't filmed it if they have. Yeah, so it's been uh, pretty cool to have educated questions that uh, uh, lead to good conversation. Yeah, thanks, man. We'll do it again. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming out.